0: This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV
1: podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Okay, why don't we get started? Um, Thank you guys for coming. So this is uh, part of a series called Fireside Chats. We've now done, I guess, close to about 10 of them uh, over the last couple of years, really trying to speak to some of the people that make uh, UCSF special, and uh, they've been a lot of fun for me, and I think incredibly instructive, and uh, today's guest uh, is uh, completely emblematic of the theme of of people who really made UCSF what it is today, so this is Steve Schroeder, and I'll just do the title thing, so Steve is a distinguished professor uh, at UCSF and runs the uh, uh, Smoking Cessation Leadership Center. Uh, His history here, uh, we'll we'll, we'll sort of get into it, but really uh, founded the Division of General Internal Medicine as we know it, It was really one of the founding fathers of the whole field of academic general medicine and primary care. Uh, Sadly, he left here uh, for a little over a decade, uh, but for a good purpose, it was to run the nation's largest health charity, the uh, Philanthropy, the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, which he did with uh, extraordinarily, extraordinary skills and results for uh, over a decade. And then we were lucky enough that Steve chose to come back and, uh, and run this uh, tobacco center that he's done uh, now for, for a while. So uh, he's been a very important mentor to me and to uh, actually innumerable number of faculty that we, uh, that we have over the years. So, Steve, welcome. Thrilled that you're willing to do this. It's good to be here. Uh, let's start at the beginning. Uh, for, where are you from? Well, I grew up in Staten Island, <clears throat> was born in Staten Island, moved to Chicago at
0: age three, and moved to the Bay Area at age six. Oh, and why did you move to the Bay Area? Uh, my dad got a job uh, with the federal housing. Uh, with, actually, he ran, you know, he was the deputy director of a, the first integrated public housing setting in, in, on the West Coast, and I lived in a federal housing project for my first four years when I was out here. Wow.
1: Yeah. And what did, you, what did you take away from your parents? What, what parts of you can be explained by understanding your, your upbringing?
0: Well, they were intellectuals. They were poor. Uh, my dad was very left-wing, and causes were very important. So the dinner table was about what things could be made better. A lot of talk about racial injustice. Mom was an intellectual. They played classical music. Um, and I was an only child, so there's a lot of focus on me, which is good and bad, mm-hmm, right? <laughs> <laughs> How'd you end up as a physician? Um, so I, to backtrack a little bit, I, was, I, I skipped some grades because I was in this housing project, and most other kids didn't have parents who'd gone to college. So I graduated from high school at 16 and wasn't very disciplined, got by on sort of quickness, <clears throat> but was interested in science fiction, mountain climbing. So I wanted to be a pioneer and try to make a difference. And uh, I was going to be a, a lawyer because I thought that's how you can change things. And then I realized that the law was based on precedent, and I wanted to go to be more of a kind of a pioneer. So I, this was, I, went, I started college in 1956. The, the mind and mental illness was a big deal, so I thought I'm going to be a psychiatrist. And
1: I majored in psychology. At Stanford. At Stanford. Thinking you would go to, not thinking you were going to go to medical school.
0: Thinking I was going to go to medical oh, To school. be a psychiatrist,
1: not a psychologist. A so, um, okay. And what, when did you decide to do something different than psychiatry? So I, to the astonishment of a lot of people, I got accepted to Harvard Medical School. Uh,
0: as I said, I wasn't very disciplined. I flunked my first biochemistry test. Shot across
1: the bow. Wow! I got to be serious. So I began to study. Now, you must not have been unserious who got into Harvard Medical School. So what... no, but I was. I took the minimal
0: science. Yeah. Had mixed grades in science, straight A's, and all the liberal arts stuff. And I think, and I was a I was in a honors program with a guy named Leon Festinger, who thought of cognitive dissonance. So it looked like I was going to be promising in that realm. And I think that year Harvard got sort of swept up with, we need more People in in, in psychiatry. So a large number of my class came in on that. Okay. Um, And I was afraid of science and wasn't disciplined enough. And then after I flunked my first test, I began to study more. Found out that I kind of liked it, but still wanted to be a psychiatrist. Took my first clerkship and oh my God, this doesn't fit. Uh, Why not? It was dogmatically 40 instead of being focused on the population. I didn't like the resonance. My teacher was a sadist. <laughs> uh, uh, so I said well maybe this is a sampling error but um when I took it a second time it didn't fit either I tried to hedge my bets so I took a tropical medicine fellowship in fourth year went to Brazil to study schistosomiasis that was a good experience but ultimately the field I felt most comfortable was in in, in internal medicine I liked the resonance I liked the discipline I liked the patient
1: contact and I have no capability with, with my hands, so surgery was out of got the it, question. Got it, Just uh, the biochemistry test, I, I've been struck by the number of people whose uh, the, the failing of something was a seminal event, so what, do you remember that moment when you saw that you flunked it? Well, I knew I hadn't prepared very well. In the past, I've sometimes been able to wing
0: things, but I was going into a classroom a week later, and I, the, one of the TAs was there any test, and he tapped me and said, Schroeder, you flunked your biochemistry test. <laughs> <laughs> So I went into really serious study mode, got a classmate to help me, and studied
1: really, really hard for the first time ever. So I know you went to Boston City for your training, right. which was sort of legendary, and probably, I think, a legendary era in the history of Boston. Yeah. So why did you choose that, and what was it like to be there?
0: So it was interesting. I kept getting, my class standing kept getting better, but Boston, the Harvard Service of Boston City was my fifth choice, actually, um, and I got it. And I'm glad that I got it because I love the people. That, that, so there were 16 white male interns of whom I was one, and I bonded with most of them. And had I gone into New York, which were my third and fourth choices, I wouldn't have met my wife when I met Boston during during the internship. So I picked it and
1: uh, liked it. And you liked the county kind of experience? You liked caring for an underserved population? And... I liked it. I, this, the, medic, the hospital was very
0: understaffed, so... We drew all all our own blood. It was every other night, every other weekend. We would wheel patients down to x-ray. But the camaraderie of the service was amazing. And uh, you had this cross-section of uh, wonderful immigrant families who were, mom was dying of cancer, and then we had a lot of alcoholic patients. And
1: Yeah, liked it. And then you took a year, and you were an EIS officer. You worked at the CDC. So what what was that about? So when I was in...
0: uh, Med school, um, the Vietnam War was going on, and they were drafting male physicians. And so uh, I took the CDC as an alternative service, which a lot of my classmates did. And I, and I wound up working in a Salmonella unit where we were in charge of epidemics. So we, I would go out on epidemics and figure out what had gone wrong and write it up. And it was based in, in Atlanta at the CDC
1: headquarters. And did, had you thought maybe you wanted to do infectious disease or pure epi, or what, what were you thinking at the time, um, or mostly just not going to be announced?
0: No, epi seemed more compelling to me than going into a lab at the NIH. And so the discipline turned out to be very, very helpful for me. Uh, How did you make your way out here? So I grew up out here. Um, when I went finished the CDC, I went back and finished. I, I looked at coming back here. It wasn't quite right. Um, I did a fellowship, and I was looking for a job after the after the the fellowship. And my concept was, I want to learn how the healthcare system works, have a responsibility for a part of it, and then go to Washington and get a government job. So, message to the young people: and I never got a government job. So, mm-hmm. you, you don't always get where you think you're going to go. Uh, I wanted to come back here, and I met some people at a at a. Uh, a medical society meeting and wrote and they said come out and interview and I interviewed every year for probably four or five years and the job wasn't quite right and one day I met with Holly Smith and he said what would it take to get you to come out here and I said are you serious? He said yes I said well i like the following things he said I think we need people like you so he cobbled together a job, he got an FTE from the dean got some money from the hospital director and I came out to work in the Institute
1: for Health Policy Studies. So Holly Smith was the, essentially the founding chair of this department. That's his stained glass over there. I was just saying to Steve, I started this series because people came up to me and said, Holly Smith, who was she? And it's actually <laughs> was a he, uh, Lloyd Hollingsworth Smith. And uh, he just passed away earlier this year. Uh, uh, so when he said, we need people like you, what was he saying? Well, it's interesting.
0: Holly was a bench scientist who valued excellence, and he was seeing that there was a new world. I was doing research on health services and expenditures, and I was in, into primary care. I think he knew that was coming. It didn't make his pulse rate race, but he knew we had to have it. So he brought me in. I think what he was doing was redshirted me, because a couple of years later he asked me to start the general medicine division.
1: So for those of us who are not football fans, are redshirting you meaning parking you for a little while yeah. until you were you were ripe or the situation was ripe or what part of that? I think he need. there was a pre-existing unit that was
0: doing good things but didn't meet his definition of what they ought to do. And so I think he needed some time to soften that one up and open it
1: up for a new unit. And a new chief of, new chief. of did you know that he was, no. had, had you slated for that? or? No. He hadn't shared that with you, hadn't shared with you. Did he ever? Did he later share that with you, or no. you've just you've just reverse engineered that? That must um, have been what he was doing.
0: But well, what I think happened was um, the Department of Family, the, the, the Family Medicine Unit at San Francisco General took away a medicine ward from political pressure, and he saw that we need to do more primary. UCSF had nothing in primary care here. Yeah, it was all nothing in generalism, really. Nothing in generalism. No, there was Larry Tierney and Rick Haber they were doing teaching. But at, at, at the Moffat site, there weren't any
1: generalists. So I want you to paint that picture. People, it's such a, in some ways, foreign concept thinking about today and where generalism has gone. But at the time, there was really no legitimized field of academic general internal medicine, or it was just emerging. And I see you as one of maybe five central leaders of that field as it emerged. So tell us a little bit about that. Did you know that at the time? Is that what you were setting out to do?
0: So again, I was going to do stuff until I got my government job.
1: And this was all,
0: you were just treading water until you got the water. dream job in the government. <laughs> yes, <sir. laughs> and uh, I was doing research at the CDC and also because there were data there. I had extra time. I was publishing papers. Um, and I came back to Boston, and I did one year of ID because you needed that to, to study for your boards. But I didn't want to be, a spe- uh, this was pre-HIV. ID got very boring very quickly. It was the same problems. And so I said, I, I don't want to do that. And the field of general medicine was just opening up. The Robert Wood Johnson Foundation had just started. They were supporting primary care. So I said, I'll look for jobs in, in a general medicine kind of a place. And I went to George Washington to be the medical director of the clinic, to be the founding medical director of the university, HMO, to supervise the resident experience in the clinic, to run
1: the CME for the school. Uh, so I had a lot of things that I was doing. I assume that when you got here, probably no different than other large academic places, being a general internist was not the top of the heap in terms of sort of the cultural pecking order. It never was, and it isn't now. So, <laughs> so, so how'd you deal with it then? And, and, and sort of you know you came in knowing that. Uh, how'd you deal with that? I assume people kind of looked at you and say, you know, why would you want to be a generalist here? Yeah, well, too well, smart well, for that, right? Well, yeah, yeah, I'm sure you heard that.
0: It's, it was the right thing. I mean, I really feel generalism is at the heart of of patient care. And we lose a lot if we don't have a generalist who understands how to put it all kind of together. And I like that and uh, was doing it. I was actually practicing general medicine across the street, was the only generalist that I said I want to start a practice. And they had to sort of create one for me because the only other people seeing patients there were residents and students. And they, they were supervised. So the faculty. residents or
1: students were the generalists, and then everybody else, the faculty, were all specialists.
0: And there were some
1: generalists supervising, but they didn't take care of patients themselves. Did you, When Holly recruited you here, did you feel like UCSF was a particularly good place to start this idea of general internal medicine in an academic setting, or a particularly tough place? What, how did you assess the landscape? So I came here because they had a clinical
0: scholar program, which is coming back again, they had the Institute for Health Policy Studies. I'd learned a lot in my time at George Washington. I wanted to write about it as a way to move the policy needle about overuse of services, about how doctors get paid, about incentives in the, in the, in the, uh, in the fee-for-service system, about high-cost illness. So I decided I would do that for a, a while and didn't know what was going to come next, didn't know I was going to start a generalist unit. But I missed, I, I, I liked the leadership aspect of that. And so when Holly asked me to do it, I said Yes.
1: So one of the things that you did here was not only build the clinical practice, but build a research agenda, in some ways trying to match what was true in other specialties, but it had to be a different kind of research agenda. It's a little, it's always a challenge. What is the focus of a research agenda for a generalist field? So how did you decide what your personal focus was going to be, and how did you decide what the research focus should be of your division?
0: So my personal focus continued to be on workforce issues, but also on the fact that the way we deliver medical care, I know the, the, uh, the, the, the department is working on this now, but a lot of overuse, unnecessary care, redundant care, incentives that push care in the wrong kind of direction. But what I decided to do was to open up a national search for faculty, and I had some slots. I wanted the best athletes. Uh, and so I didn't stipulate what they are going to do. I Meaning you didn't,
1: didn't know I need somebody in ethics and I need somebody in health services research. And you just wanted the best people, and you'd build around those. But it's interesting.
0: When I advertised, a lot of people who were subspecialists elsewhere wrote to me saying, I'm really a generalist at heart, and they look good, but I said, if they come here and do well, people are going to say, no, they did it because they're a, they're a pulmonary doctor, or an endocrinologist or a cardiologist. So I didn't look, I didn't, t- I didn't do any looking at subspecialists, even though many of them said that they wanted to
1: join this, this new unit. Yeah. It's interesting. I mean, people think that the whole movement for value and thinking about the roles of incentives are fairly new. But you were doing this work 30 years ago. Yeah, in, 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 the, in the 70s, actually. In the 70s. And you probably wrote articles, I, mean, I, don't, I didn't find one, but I, I'm guessing that you wrote articles saying that the costs of American healthcare are unsustainable when it was 9% of a gross, gross domestic product, right? Is that? I quoted people saying that. Quoted yeah. people saying... <laughs> <laughs> so when you approach this problem, which today we would use, we would give the shorthand of value to, that The quality is not very good and costs are way too high and they're going to bankrupt the country and distort everything and the incentives are wrong. Um, How much hope did you have that you'd be able to change that? And as you then sort of look at the 30 or 40 years after that, what surprised you about the way that is all spooled out?
0: So I'm a little bit of a windmill tilter, and I've taken on a lot of issues where I tried to write and say, look at this, isn't this a horrible thing? And journals accepted it and people talked about it. But with the exception of two things later on during my life, I don't think I moved the needle at all because the power structure and the incentives weren't very conducive to it.
1: So what were an example of one or two things that you were really really tilting at heart, the fee-for-service payment?
0: How doctors get paid. So it it astonished me as a medical director of the George Washington HMO. We capitated our our specialists, but they sent us fee-for-service bills so that we could know what they might have gotten. And I looked at the bills...
1: (laughs) That's actually very funny.
0: I looked at the bills, and I was just astonished that they would charge so much for 10 minutes or 15 minutes. These were surgical specialists, medical specialists. And so when I got out here, I tried to find out how, how had that happened. We traced down how Blue Shield got started and all that and did some modeling to show that uh, even for a generalist, you can get a lot more money if you did that. We looked at um, there was when I was at George Washington um, I looked at lab tests coming back for, for the people who worked on a clinic. And there was a huge difference between the churners and the people who were kind of on a parsimonious end. No apparent benefit to their patient care. So quantitative data wrote, wrote about that, um, variations. But um, people were interested in it. They wrote editorials about it. But the way academic medical centers are and were, will be kind of situated the profit motive and the market dynamics aren't conducive to the kind of stuff that I wanted to have happen Hmm.
1: so how would you not just get frustrated and throw in the towel
0: because you got to keep going
1: yeah okay (laughs) I mean I remember seeing a study I've heard people come up to me and say you know we have electronic records now why don't we show everybody the cost of ordering a lab test you did that study in the late 80s 1980 right? right And what did it show?
0: It showed that uh, we thought we had an an intervention. We audited the residents. We educated them about costs. We had a control group. Everybody thought the intervention was going to work. It made no difference at all. And And that was was at a time when the hospital industry was um, advocating not to do cost containment under President Carter because they were going to do what's called the the voluntary effort. And my thesis was that the voluntary effort wasn't going to work. And so I actually didn't tell my... My co-authors that. But I thought we were going to do a negative study, which would be very important
1: to show that it didn't work. So as we move into the modern era with better, quote-unquote, computers and more increasing capacity to give people decision support and guide them and maybe a little artificial intelligence thrown in, um, do, you, do you have any hope that that the ability of the system to guide physician practice to be more cost-effective? Do you think the results are going to be any different in the current era? Has the situation change, or you still think it's semi-feudal? Um, there's a lot of hope, moderate amount of hype, but the incentives
0: in the system haven't really changed. And you look at the economic model, and the hospitals growing and buying out other hospitals and primary care getting marginalized and the
1: margins being in the high-tech care, I don't see how we're going to get there. Has the, as you say, marginalization of primary care, has that surprised you? Did you think it would become a more, I mean, we hear all these comparisons from other countries, and half the doctors are primary care doctors, and if you do that, more care is managed, more cost-effectively. Did you think it would move more in that direction, or you were sort of clear-eyed about the political obstacles of, of, of shifting around where the money flows? It's
0: pretty clear. We, there was a boomlet in the middle 80s where um, it looked like healthcare reform was going to focus on primary care, managed care—that we were going to go nationally the Kaiser model, where primary care is is more of a of a feature—but um, it petered out. It petered out politically, and I think although there's something in medicine, you want to—it's scary to have no boundaries to what you need to to know. So it's very comforting to be as focused as you can and be on the sort of the top of your game. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I wasn't sure where where, where I wasn't sure how it was going to come out, but I wasn't surprised that it didn't leap up. We just
1: had our match and did spectacularly well, including in the two primary care programs, which we now have 18 residents in. Uh, Did you start the primary care program here?
0: The primary care program was started the year before I came here with a grant from the Robert Johnson Foundation. We expanded it, and then we we um, co-ran one with San Francisco General, which ultimately, after I left, became its own program.
1: And has it done what you hoped it would do?
0: I think the residents are spectacular because they believe in primary care, and it's here. Um, But I think nationally the data show that people are less and less interested in, in, in primary care. So
1: this is a dangerous question for me to ask, but one of the bigger changes in the world of generalism was about 20 years ago in many places it bifurcated. To outpatient generalism, we can talk about hospitalists and this thing mm-hmm. called hospitalists. So, <laughs> we've talked about this a little bit over the years. But tell tell me what your what your thoughts are. about. what were your thoughts at the time when we, when all of it started, and what are your thoughts today?
0: So, one of the benefits of starting our division was that we recruited some spectacular doctors who became the best inpatient doctors on the faculty by and large. Um, and but it's hard to do that. Now, I have a primary care physician myself who is uh, older, and he said the hospitalist movement gave him an extra 10 years of practice because he could control himself. So uh, I think the old model where the residents basically ran things and the, and the attendings came in and supervised, but from a distance, often without great knowledge, wasn't going to survive market forces. And I think what it, the growth of the hospitals, you know, I think weakened divisions in general medicine because it relegated. The other thing that happens is that in the clinics, many of the patients who come to the clinics are extremely difficult to care for. They have complex illnesses. They still have to be seen in a short amount of time. Often there's somatizers. They have drug issues. So it, a sustained diet of those patients is much more taxing than in, than in a more of, of a community-based clinic, but the residents don't see those community-based clinics so they get a sense that primary care is really not a a sustainable pathway.
1: Okay. Uh, I want to ask you about the research agenda in general medicine, then I'd like to switch to the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation era for you. Um, I think i told you this, you gave me the most important piece of career advice I've ever gotten. Uh, I came into your office when I was a third year resident and I thought I wanted to be an academic researcher in general medicine. And you asked me what my focus was going to be and I said, well, I kind of like policy, epidemiology, ethics, outcomes. And I probably named three or four other things. And you said, that sounds like a disaster. <laughs> and and, and I, I said, why? He said, if you want to be a researcher, you're going to be dependent on getting grants and writing papers. And you're going to be competing against the world's expert." In uh, you know quality of life in patients with HIV or or some fairly narrow niche of the world, and to be that much of a dilettante and that eclectic, you're not going to be able to compete successfully. And I was about to walk out of the office, and I had that moment like the patient with you know. By the way, doc, I have chest pain, and I turned around and I said to you, "And what did you concentrate on?" And you said, "I completely ignored that advice." <laughs> and you pointed to your bookshelf, and you had a clinical textbook that you edited and a book on policy, and a book on economics, and a book on ethics. And I said, why did you give me that advice? And you said, because it's right for most people, but wrong for a few. It will be very hard for you to make it as an 80% researcher, but you need to do what floats your boat. And that's sort of what I ended up doing, and it's worked out okay. So uh, you probably don't remember that, but tell me about sort of your thinking. You, you, you're, you're known as one of the best mentors around here. So you were giving me sort of hard advice. At the end, I pried out of you the advice I wanted to hear. Uh, how do you think about mentorship? And, and actually, as you reflect on that, uh, assuming I got the facts mostly right, how do you, how do you reflect on that interaction?
0: So uh, mentoring is fun. It's a, it's a real privilege. And I, there's a tendency in mentors to try to impose your own values on people, which sounds like, in a way, I imposed my sense of the market on you. I didn't impose my values. But what I try to do is size up the person that I'm mentoring, figure out what their passion is, what their abilities are, how well they can withstand any disappointment, because many people who come here have never lost, never feel anything. They didn't flunk a biochemistry. Right. Uh, and so uh, to try to help them to figure out what's the best match for what they do it's harder to sustain the kinds of interests that you just talked about and that I obviously shared because most of the money today comes from the, from the NIH, which is, category, which is broken down into disease silos. So you can do ethics in cardiology, quality of care, disparities in pulmonary. You can, you can slice into that, but you've got to go through a review panel at a disease-focused place. So that's, that, that's hard. Yeah. Most, I only got one, H, one NIH grant in my whole life but I published lots,
1: yeah. and I got it. I think the advice was completely correct, that I veered from something that was narrowly research-focused to something where I was thinking a lot about different issues, but most of my work was in leadership roles and other things where being a generalist actually is quite helpful.
0: Living by your wits, though, is
1: perilous. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> Let's talk about the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. So uh, how did you first even hear about that job? Well, when I was
0: at George Washington, they had just started, and they were the fertilizer for a journalist movement. So, and uh, the the uh, the division chief at George Washington was very creative. Got to know the folks at Robert Johnson, so they got to know us. We actually got a clinical scholar program there because of him and me in 1974, um, and so I knew about them from the start. Mm-hmm.
1: And how did you? hear about that the presidency was open or had you been looking to for the next thing were you getting a little uh, itchy uh, after so your, your time here um when you run a good
0: division at a place like ucsf you get in play for other jobs the next job up would be a, a department chair and i got some probes on that but department chair at least as i understood them in, in good places was many subspecialty medicine and bench research. I was primary care and health policy research. Not a good fit. Mm-hmm. So I didn't sniff at those. But then...
1: Oh, there were people in your era who were generalists, who did, it seemed like, yeah. the next thing to do if you were an academic leader, John Eisenberg, yeah. Hal Socks, people like that.
0: I didn't want to climb that ladder. I wanted to do things that were authentic to what I cared about. Mm-hmm. And that would have seemed to me not a good fit. Um, but then I got, and I love being here, and then I got asked to think about being a dean here. First in 1982, as I was about to go on a sabbatical to England, and then later on in 1989. And I thought, I would love that opportunity. And uh, Holly Smith actually chaired the search committee. And um, I was the internal candidate, but wasn't chosen. And I understood. I thought the person they chose, Joe Martin, was a better fit. Um, But then I got in play for other things. And uh, I remember three years earlier, David Rogers, the founding president of Robert Johnson, stepped down and they sent a letter around, and I was one of the grantees of Robert Johnson, saying, Lee Clough has been appointed interim president. I thought, interim, that's interesting. But I never thought, and the other thing I did is I I led a seminar for the Clinical Scholar Program asking about what are the key positions where a physician can influence policy. And guess what we chose? Editor of the New England Journal, president of the Robert Johnson Foundation. And I went up serving on the board of the NAGM and actually picking its current editor. So mm-hmm. I got close to both of those. Um, but then I got a letter from the person, the chair of the board who was doing the search for the presidency. Can you come out? Can I come out and have, have dinner with you and talk about who I next So he couched it as, who would you want to recommend? So I came with a list of people. who I thought. Would be, I didn't put me on it, yeah. but I got in, in play. I think what happened... It was unusual for a division chief to be named head of a big foundation. When David Rogers had left, he left under very difficult circumstances. The board at that time was very conservative. It was all white male, all pretty conservative politically. And he had bad things to say about the board and basically said, it's not a good place to work. And so I think a lot of the better qualified candidates (laughs) fell out (laughs) and I was was standing.
1: (laughs) When it became clear that, they, that that conversation with you was also potentially about you taking the job, was that a no-brainer?
0: Um, I, I was also in play for some East Coast deans jobs. I actually got offered a couple of them. But Robert Johnson, to me, was even better than that government job that I thought I was going to get. Mm-hmm. The challenge was our kids, but luck timing was great because um, our older son was just it was a freshman, And our younger son was about to be a freshman, so I would have taken the job when both were in college. Mm -hmm. So it worked out. And Sally, my wife, father and brother, went to Princeton. So moving to Princeton, which is where the Robert Johnson Foundation is, wasn't a big
1: stretch for her. So you have this foundation with billions of dollars and the opportunity to shape the system in all sorts of ways. How would you decide what your foci would be?
0: So the mission of the foundation was to improve health and health care for the people of this country. That's pretty broad. and
1: (laughs) You can do a lot of things with that.
0: All it had done was health care. Hadn't done anything in health. So when I interviewed, they said, what would you do different? I said, you either ought to change the kind of mission statement you have or bolster up health. And they said, okay, wise guy, what would you do about health? I said, well, it seems to me, looking at the numbers, that substance abuse is a big issue, smoking, drinking, and drugs. And smoking and drinking are legal, so the government's hands are sort of tied, um, and I would recommend doing those. It turns out, and I wasn't smart enough to know this, that the alpha trustee of the board was the former CEO of, JN, of Johnson & Johnson, and he had become president of the Partnership for a Drug-Free America. And I was the only one of the four finalists who even mentioned that, and when I left, he said, Schroeder is our guy.
1: You hadn't looked up his bio, and
0: I didn't even know who. There was, no, there was no
1: Google at the time. You couldn't. No, there was no no. <laughs> and I didn't know what the power dynamics were. I see, interesting. And um, was the board all on board? That a, was a big departure from what the foundation had done. The board was behind you. The.
0: In in in, and in shifting
1: abuse? it in that direction? And I, no. substance no. abuse is kind of an edgy topic, so I imagine yeah. for a conservative group of people that would be tricky.
0: So I got to the foundation, and our staff was, uh, I, I was chosen. And so obviously they didn't balk at that. And I got to the foundation. And, told, and our, the, the staff wasn't working together very well mm-hmm. because in the wake of Rogers leaving, there was a lot of, uh, of internal strife. So my first goal... And we also were spread way too thin. So our first goal was we should try to consolidate our program, and we should get to staff to work together more as a teamwork. And I told them my two goals were best possible program, best place to work. And the first was more important than the second, but I hope we could do both. So I created two working teams, uh, interdisciplinary, to say we've got ten goals now. Let's come back with three one of them has to be substance abuse. You can have some power as a foundation president.
1: I imagine that you can. Yeah. More than you can as a
0: <laughs> chair or a dean. Uh, and they pushed back on the substance abuse because none of them had come to work on that. Um, but they also believed in trying to, you know, they came to the foundation to try to make a difference. So ultimately we came with, with three new goals. We went to our board in February. Keep people out of the, the health care system by not getting them into problems with smoking, drinking, and drugs give them access to health care if they need to get in, and do better in chronic illness once they're in. really seemed to fit very well. The second and third, we, 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 we had a retreat. board loved it. first one created a firestorm. So half of the board said, this is great. We should work on smoking and drinking. They're, you know, we, the health care system doesn't do enough for that. It's wonderful. The other half said, the tobacco industry is going to kill us. It's going to sully the good name of the Robert Johnson Foundation. We can't do it. And it went back and forth, back and forth. And finally, the CEO, the former CEO of Merck, said, I've got a compromise. What, what is it, John? Let's start with underage smoking and drinking because they're not legal. Oh, we actually had a tie. It was an 8-to-8 eight eight tie. And my predecessor, who was there as a sort of, a, of a, an observer, passed me a note, which I didn't save. Steve, this is too controversial. Withdraw it put it in my pocket i knew it was the right thing to do mm-hmm. and ultimately they bought into underage smoking and drinking and then we educated them about and today the board says that was the finest program we've ever done well so it's changed did you
1: i i, I was reading your bio there's a quote that at one point you said quote the tobacco industry plays rough yes did that did the mentions of that surprise you no you were ready for that. You knew that. No, you I wasn't got ready it.
0: for that. I was naive. Uh, you
1: know,
0: I was in academia, where when when the press calls you, it's that's a good study you did. And yeah, all right. Uh, so they did at least in the the tobacco documents archives, which we have here now, revealed that they fronted, they paid for two front groups in Pennsylvania and Colorado to attack us for uh, stuff that you know we gave a program in Pennsylvania. To help uh, kids with uh, handicaps to do better after school, they said this was a usurping of the government prerogative, and and I didn't realize who would come from that. But our board just said, "Don't get in bed with a snake, don't fight a skunk, just keep doing good good stuff." Uh, I had our phones surveyed for being tapped, really? which wasn't they weren't tapped, but I worried about that. Um, but what we helped to do was make it respectable to work in smoking because uh, up until then it hadn't
1: been well i want to ask you about the support study yes so one of the more famous and maybe positive failures in the history of medical research so tell us about the idea how it happened
0: so lee Clough, who was my predecessor um saw that in the icus of the teaching hospitals he saw things weren't always optimum you were keeping people living who didn't who shouldn't have done that patients wishes weren't being followed up So he actually um, contacted a guy named Bill Knauss, who had done the Apache system, and asked him to come to the foundation. And Bill, I was a mentor of So the Apache system
1: is, people may know, but is a a computerized scoring system or a point system to try to prognosticate ICU outcomes. Exactly. And Bill was
0: the person who kind of developed that. So Bill called me up because I'd been his, uh, we'd written some papers together. So I said, Robert Johnson Foundation wants me to come up. Should I do it? I said, Bill. This is your meal ticket. Do it. So he and Joanne Lynn were commissioned to do a study of what happens to outcomes in five academic ICUs. And they found just what Lee Clough had said, just what he kind of predicted. But that time, Lee was gone, and I was there when they unrolled stage one, which was how horrible it was. Yeah. So I went down with Dick Reynolds, who was my COO, to hear what was going to be stage two. Stage two was going to be create an ombudsman to go between the patient's family and the ICU staff, let people know what the prognosis was, manage pain. And I said, I don't think this is enough. And they said, that's all we can do. And so two years Politically later... Politically or with
1: the funding or what, what, what limited the intervention?
0: The ICU staff wouldn't do anymore. Okay. They were so beholden to, we got to do everything possible. Um, and so two years later, Vicki Weisfeld comes into my room with a very long face. She said, I've got horrible news we've just wasted $27 million on a negative study. And I said, we haven't wasted a lot. We're going to make the best picture of lemonade you've ever seen. <laughs> so we started a movement. We started palliative care. We liberalized pain, which may have had a boomerang. Right. We created fellowships. We got the material into textbooks. We started the palliative care unit here, actually. Yeah. Um, because it seemed to me, and it, it, what they saw resonated with what I'd seen here that and it's interesting, both of my parents knew friends in Berkeley where they were living who had, had unnecessary or unwanted cancer chemotherapy and other things because they couldn't say no. And my parents said to me, How can you keep that from happening? He said, It's easy, you've got a generous physician's son. But it's hard. The and I noticed when I was in Europe on a sabbatical, um, I had I, I would go to to Teaching hospitals and make rounds, on, and the general medical wards were just like at UCSF. Then I'd say, "Take me to your ICU," and it was night and day. The ICUs were very small for a thousand-bed hospital. The train wrecks weren't there, mm-hmm. so I because they weren't say,
1: being taken there. They were.
0: I would say, "Where are your train wrecks?" And inevitably, someone would say, "You know, we did a fellowship at Yale or Hopkins or Stanford, and in renal or whatever, and we loved it." But there's one thing about your system. You don't know when to stop. And we didn't know when to stop. And palliative care and patients' rights and
1: rights to die are a little bit of a pushback on that. So when she came into your office and said this is negative, so $27 million study, fairly intensive intervention to try to improve all these things in the unit, and it didn't work at all, had you, and it sounds like you instinctively said, in some ways, this is good, because yeah. it demonstrates the need was to do something pat. more robust.
0: The situation was too pat to be cured by what they Something said. that simple, yeah. in, in,
1: a, in a way. Uh, had you been pre- prepared for that negative result, or this was, it, was, it was a surprise to you? I was ambivalent about it. In a way, I kind of hoped that you know, this was a successful trial. The
0: other thing that I did was I said, we have to rule this out really carefully so it isn't doctor bashing. -hmm. So, we hired a communications firm. They did calls on editorial boards of uh, the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post. The other thing is that the authors wanted to send it to JAMA. I wanted to send it to NAGM. They said, send it to JAMA. I said, okay. And it languished. So, it's the only time I ever did this. I called the JAMA editor and I said, George, you've got a story, you've got a paper that someone's sitting on that's going to be on the front page of the New York Times. You better make sure they don't turn it down. And he didn't. And they out. took
1: it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's, it, was your sense that the difference between Europe and the U.S. was the medical care and, and all that? Or was it, is it so embedded in the culture of the, of the societies and the fact that people in the U.S. don't believe that we should ever say it's enough versus the, the medical part of it? Which, how did you kind of dissect out that outcome?
0: Yeah, I actually had a slide where I showed at every stage... From the patient, from the family, from the GP, from the referring hospital, from the teaching hospital, from the ICU, the vectors were much more this way in the U.S. and much more balanced in Europe. Not necessarily balanced, but much more the other way in Europe. And the other thing is the legal system is different there
1: than it is here. How much did you think one of your original... uh, foci in your work was the influence of the payment system how much of it do you think was the payment system that people are being i mean we hear that all the time it's in some ways it is an indictment of doctors you're paid to do more you're paid to keep these people alive never feels that way but i how much was how much do you think that was at play
0: um certainly here the residents weren't getting paid anymore from keeping somebody going but i think what happens is that our their incentives To build that part of the supply. Mm -hmm. So it's not an accident that acting medical centers short shrift primary care, but build as many ICUs as they can build. And once they're built, they're filled.
1: Got it. Yeah. Um, and so as you now have looked at, I mean I think for particularly for young people, it's sort of inconceivable there was a time before there was palliative care, because it's such a dominant presence here now. So did you purposefully then set out and say we need a field of medical specialists and, and others who work with them to address these end-of-life issues? without that a sort of intentional decision? We need to build a field, and here are the things we're going to do to fund to build that field? So let me make one thing clear. The
0: foundation is driven a lot by staff. So the, all these things didn't come from me. The Execution of our tobacco work brought in good people, but they did it. So we had some people, Rosemary Gibson, who you probably know was one of the people, Vicki Weisfeld, and they knew about palliative care, and we decided to fund a center to advance palliative care at Mount Sinai that Chris Castle, who's now here, led, and then Diane Meyer uh, took over when Chris left to be the dean at, at OHSU.
1: So there was already the seeds of palliative care were out there. there was, it, was, but, it existed in Britain. It was pretty yeah. nascent in the United States. Well, in Britain, it was more hospice care,
0: yeah. yeah, and I actually had a chance to visit Cicely Saunders when I was in, in London. So. Pref- the founder of, of that founder, The founder
1: of, of, of hospice care, yeah. Uh, as you look back, you've had so many accomplishments. What are you proudest of? Our sons. That's the right answer.
0: <laughs> both of them went into medicine for the right reasons. Once a cardiologist. I'm getting a little jumped <laughs> up. <laughs> Good. That's nice. Once a cardiologist, once a pediatrician at Stanford. They're both wonderful fathers, husbands, sons, and doctors. Uh, then I got involved in three organizations. Started the Division of General Medicine here, which really went well. Um, took a great organization, Robert Johnson, and I think made it better, and started our smoking cessation leadership center here. So all those would be three. That's pretty great. Yeah. Uh, tell us a little bit about the smoking cessation center. So when you have a great job like at Robert Wood Johnson, it's tempting to just stay there, um, and um, I decided to leave. I, I wasn't fired. I decided many. So I, when I give counsel to people, I say the. People who run foundations don't usually get fired because they've done a bad job with the program. They get fired because of a personality conflict, which is interesting. It's it's the the personality conflict that gets them in trouble. Um, But I decided to leave because a couple things had happened. One is we had outgrown our space, and we did a construction project, which I supervised. um, And I wanted to do one more thing before I got too old, and there was a geographic pull. My mom had just died. My dad was still living over in El Cerrito. Our kids had come back to residencies on the, on the West Coast. They weren't fathers yet, but they were going to get married soon. And so I went to the board and said, I'd like to leave and start a process. And uh, a couple things happened. One is I was worried that we lose the health focus. Because as I handicapped the likely successors for me, they were all going to be health care people. So I, before I announced we were gonna, I was going to leave, I split us up into health and healthcare units and put a vice president in each. And ultimately, my successor, Risa Lavisa more who, by the way, is an African-American woman, to take my place on what it used to be an all-white board. So some change happened there. Um, but uh, we, we split them up. And then I got my board chair to head the search. And he bought into health and health care. So all the external people, many famous people, I'm not going to mention their names, but they came and they interviewed and they said, you should be a healthcare foundation. We should do quality of care. We should do big, they do big data. But today they would have said, let's AI, do big AI, data. Let's it. do value. Yeah. Let's do AI. And uh, Risa and the, other, and, and the other person inside said, no, let's keep doing health and healthcare." care. Um, and I, I had the benefit of really good timing because when I got to Robert Johnson, the stock market took off. So I could sustain our programs in healthcare at their current level and put all the new money into health, nobody saw it as a takeaway. So I got credited for the stock market, which I had nothing <laughs> to <right>. um, <laughs> do. So just so people
1: understand, I mean, the
0: the, the foundation
1: has how, how many billion?
0: Well, it's got about 10 billion now, and you yeah. give away 5% or more of, of the net assets. So if the market goes down, you have less that you, you can give away. Yeah. Um, and so when I was getting ready to leave, they said we'd like, to help you, we want to create a chair, so I have the chair here. And we'd like you to run a, run a program. Pick it when and where. And Harvard wanted me to come back, and I definitely wanted to come back here. Why? Uh, I love this place. I love this place. It's, such, it's got amazing people. It's a state, it's a governmental program. You got to work for the government. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so it's the federal government with the VA, it's the state government here, it's the county government the values of San Francisco, the egalitarianism. So it's this amazing blend of high-tech, elite care with soulful work to try to make things better. And the students and the residents are just amazing. So I definitely wanted to come back. Also, it's, it, you know, this isn't a bad place to live. And we had bought a house in Tiburon in 1976, way before the property values took Got off. Got it, yeah. So they, so they said, pick a, pick a program. And I thought, what can I do to make... The other thing I should say, I, I, I met Jimmy Carter. He came to the foundation. We helped to support him. And I said, Mr. President, why are you still working so hard? He said, once you've been the President of the United States, it opens a whole lot of doors. Well, in a much more modest way, once you've been President of the Robert Johnson Foundation, it can open a lot of doors for you to do good. And it seemed to me that where I could do good best would be to straddle medicine and public health, particularly in smoking, Because the group here, the group that you and I know, nobody smokes. But in fact, there's still, when I came back here, there were 45 million people who were smoking. Now it's down to 34 million. And it's all the vulnerable people in our population. And I thought that I could be of help in getting organizations to take smoking more seriously. So what does the unit do? So the unit is um, we start out giving grants to organizations, small grants, to incent them to do the right thing, Um, clinical groups, but ultimately, we got to work with groups that were, more, that were more the focus of smoking problems, so mental illness, substance use disorders. So we work with the very large federal agency, SAMHSA. We're now a national center of excellence. We get money from them. We work with the state of California. We work with psychiatrists. We work with the National Alliance for Mental Illness. So we work with advocacy groups, with government groups, with professional groups, and we try to provide technical assistance. We do, we've done about 80 webinars. Written a lot of articles. Um, we've used the, So, one of the things we found is that many clinicians don't want to take the time and the trouble to help smokers quit. They're too busy. We've given them a default option call the quit line. The quit line had been out there, but people hadn't marketed. So, we're sort of marketers, advocates, social change people, sort of like you. On
1: huh? <laughs> a good day. Thank you. That was fabulous. We have about 10 minutes. I'll open it up and see if anybody has any, any questions or comments.
0: You'd mentioned that you had looked previously at the most impactful roles for physicians to impact policy, and had come up with New England Journal and uh, the Foundation. I'm curious what your answer to that question would be today, if it would be different. I might put JAMA on there, too, because I think it's come a long way. The problem with governmental jobs like CDC, so, you know, the, the head of the CDC is an amazing job, but then Congress says you can't study gun violence. Uh, global climate change is a huge issue but government's hands are tied so in a way the private sector has more gates you know head of the gates foundation as our former chancellor has done has a huge potential to do income but the potential to have a bully pulpit to shape an agenda to put money into places where government isn't able or afraid to or or wants to do it is a wonderful opportunity and and there probably ought to be something in the social media, but I don't know if it's concentrated kind of sufficiently. Um, maybe if you're the head of Google, do something, too. That, that would be my answer. Thank you. It's, yeah. That's a good question.
1: Thanks. Yeah, what do, what do you think of... There, is a, there are a lot of very talented leaders in healthcare who are leaving to go take jobs in tech companies, uh, whether it's Amazon or Google or yeah. Microsoft. What do, you, what do you think of that?
0: It's a great question. And early on when I came here, I had so many people come to me with apps to help smokers quit. And the problem, one of the problems, so I've written a fair bit about class and health. And one of the reasons the United States does so badly in our health outcomes isn't so much that we have so many uninsured, although that's a part of it. It's that we have more extremes of poverty. And I worry that the audience for all that stuff in Silicon Valley isn't the people who need it and that there's a mismatch there. And I'd like to see more attention paid to that. Also to social determinants of health, housing, food, jobs, that kind of stuff. And what, what do you think
1: of sort of modern efforts to redesign primary care, whether in San Francisco you see Forward, you see One Medical, you see new groups that are using tech in different ways, thinking about how to use teams <coughs> in different ways, sort of trying to in some ways blow up the, the traditional model of primary care?
0: I think they're worth trying. I think until the reimbursement system changes, there's still going to be, you know, you, you, you spend a lot of time counseling someone, and then you send them to get an echo, and that echo pays a lot more than yeah. that. So it's worth trying, and uh, nurse practitioners, PAs, all that, yeah.
1: All right. We will quit. Steve, this is terrific. Thank you so much. Nice this is so much. Thanks, everybody. Thank you.